0: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Every month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in Genocide Studies. Today, I have the great pleasure of talking with Martin Shaw. Shaw is the author of the thought-provoking new book, Genocide and International Relations, published by Cambridge University Press. In the book, Shaw subjects the modern thinking about genocide, both scholarly and, and activist, to a piercing examination and, and finds it wanting in some ways. He then sketches out an alternative framework for thinking about genocide and tests its validity by examining the history of genocide in the past 150 years. It's an excellent book, one that will challenge many to rethink their ideas about the, about the field. I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk to Martin with it today, and with that, Martin, welcome, and thanks for being with us on New Books and Genocide Studies.
1: Well, thank you, Kelly. It's so nice to have this opportunity to talk about my work.
0: Well, why don't we start out by, um, by going before your work and asking you to talk a little bit about who you are and how you became a sociologist.
1: Well, I, I became a sociologist uh, a long time ago. Uh, and I, w- I was always interested in politics, actually, and through politics I became interested in society. This was the 1960s when uh, sociology was very fashionable as, as the discipline which would uh, help us to understand what was going on in the world. And so that's why I went in, into, into sociology, I suppose. Uh, and I was very much involved with the the issues of, of that period as a activist as well as a um, somebody who thought about these things and studied them.
0: See, so you, you you say you you talk about yourself as a historical sociologist. For those non sociologists in the audience, can you say something about what the subfield is about and why you find it so valuable? Uh,
1: well, as a, a historical sociologist, I'm I'm interested in uh, what. C. Wright Mills called middle range theory. I'm interested in uh, theory which isn't uh, you know, either very, very grand, very, very abstracted or uh, very uh, detailed empirical uh, close empirical study but in the sort of generalizations we can make about trends over broad historical periods and uh, in particular epochs and uh, that's uh, I find that's the most satisfying sort of sociology. Neither uh, so uh, general and abstract as, as to be difficult to to connect to an understanding of what's going on in the world nor uh so so tightly focused or narrowly focused uh, we miss the big picture so it's a, it's a big picture sort of sociology that is concerned very much with change with with uh you know how with what with continuity and change obviously continuity is, is an important part of everything but uh, but with with how things change over over time and how uh, different historical periods uh Pose different sorts of problems of analysis, as well as problems for people who live in. You,
0: you mentioned that you were an activist. How, how did you get interested in the, the uh, in, in mass violence as a subject of of, of research?
1: Um, I suppose I got I got interested in it because uh, from, from, from quite an early age. I mean, I grew up in the the aftermath when well, I was born. In the aftermath of the Second World War, I grew up in the period of the Cold War. Uh, when I was a young adult there was the, the Vietnam War. Uh you know, all the all these uh, realities uh focused me very much on the problem of war and and when I uh became an academic, uh although I was interested in some other subjects first of all, I I quickly moved in uh, by the beginning of the nineteen eighties I was I was working mainly on issues to do with 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 war and conflict and uh and I wrote quite a, a few uh, studies of this kind. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, but I, I, uh, I got involved with, uh, with issues of genocide and, uh, because I realised all along, in, in, in when I was writing about war, that really genocide was tied up with, with, with war, and it was very difficult mm-hmm. to write properly about war uh, without uh, writing also about genocide. And I was asked to write a, a textbook on war, and uh, this was in the uh, late 90s, uh, and. Uh, and I eventually uh, produced the bo- book which is called War and Genocide which was actually an attempt to look at war but in, 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 in uh, bringing in genocide and, and showing how the two are, are related and that was my first entry into the, the genocide field and, I mean I suppose you know I was becoming more aware of, of, of the history and the uh, for example when I was growing up and everybody the, the Second World War was so much part of the background hmm. that uh, the Holocaust and, and, uh, other genocides of that period were not really so much a part of the story about the war as they are now, and, and so you know it took us took a time to actually hone in hone in on this uh, this particular problem.
0: So, so what brings you to write this book? Uh, well, this book is
1: is really a. It's the third book I've written, which is uh, concerned Mm -hmm. with genocide. And and the first one, as I just mentioned, was was War and Genocide. The second was called What is Genocide? And was a a book about the the concept and the the ideas. It was very much, uh, you know, trying to... Look at the the very contested nature of the genocide concept, uh, concept and the debates around it, from the point of view of social theory, and you know to to, to bring what I hope was a you know sort of rigorous sociological approach to bear on the concept of genocide. But having written that, I felt very dissatisfied that I'd only only dealt with things at the the conceptual level, mm. and uh, although the book contains quite a lot of illustrat- illustrations and uh... it's certainly not disconnected from the 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 debates about uh... about the the uh... The historical problems it, it doesn 't it doesn't present a, a historical framework, although it argues for one and, and so really, I felt I, I, I wanted to write something which would look at the, the changing patterns of genocide would look at uh, so the problem of genocide from the historical sociological point of view that I was trying to explain before and this is really what this this book is trying to do in the first place. Um, secondly, I wanted to to look at the the patterns of genocide from a perspective which takes into account the many uh, cases of genocide which are not uh, on a very large scale, uh, which are not what Mark Levine calls the mega genocides, mm-hmm. but are uh, much more a smaller scale, often localized, but nevertheless uh, much more common than um, the very large scale genocides. And I wanted, to, I wanted to look at the pattern of genocide in uh, a, a very broad way, which, which, which included these smaller as well as the larger scale episodes and, uh, and, and to, to, look at this across different historical periods of, 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 the recent past. Um, well, there wasn't a third reason, but I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> so come back. Well, <laughs> oh, you, you start Oh, the third reason, sorry. The third reason, reason, of course, was to to connect, uh, to connect these, uh, the the study of these patterns of genocide to uh, a theoretical approach deriving from international relations, uh, and to to look at the ways in which uh, the changing patterns of genocide were related to mm-hmm. the changing forms of the international system, the the, the 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 development of the international system, and particularly to look at the 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 way we have very different patterns of genocide, for example, in the uh, the late 19th century, we're still. I Maybe mean, we talk about genocide, it's still very much talking, I think, about colonial genocide, uh, which has been uh, you know, the, the main area of genocide in the previous uh, 100 or 200 years. Uh, you know, then, in the, in the first part of the 20th century, Euro, uh, genocide becomes a really big problem in Europe, and genocide is much more state-centered uh, than it was before. Much more, many more uh, uh, radical party states are coming to the fore and, and are 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 the the agents of a new, generally much larger scale uh, type of of genocide. We think of the Armenian genocide, the Holocaust, Mm -hmm. and then. uh, But what what was interesting interesting for me was to look at the what comes after that during the Cold War and the uh, post-Cold War era, and the ways in which the patterns of genocide have changed again from those of the the period leading up to and during the Second World War, and to look at why, whether, how those patterns are related to the changes in the international system, the big changes which took place after the Second World War and after the end of the Cold War.
0: The nature of research about genocide is, is a key element of this book. So so I'd like to ask you to say something about the emergence of the field of, of genocide studies and and the consequences. Of of the way that field emerged for how that field, how genocide gets studied now.
1: Yeah, so this is this is uh, a big preoccupation, if you like, a background preoccupation of of, of mm-hmm. this book. Um, yeah. uh, it's something I already touched on in the previous book. Uh, my uh, take on the way in which genocide studies has has, has developed is that. It has been very much uh, influenced by the ways in which very few particular genocides uh, that have been uh, understood in society and the ways in which uh, certain groups of scholars have, often for you know, cultural and personal as well as uh, intellectual reasons, Come to look at, uh, look at look at look at these look at the particular cases, and that the, the paradigm of genocide studies has developed from particularly from the uh, case of the Holocaust, mm-hmm. uh, which of course was uh, well in the broader framework of the Nazi genocide was 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 what Raphael Lemkin started out with when he mm-hmm. uh, invented the concept of, of genocide, uh, and. I think that the the, the field has been skewed in a sense by uh, its starting points. The the starting point is too dominant that uh, the other cases are understood in terms of their relationship to the Holocaust, in terms of what uh, Jeffrey Alexander calls a bridging from the Holocaust. So, for example, uh, the Armenian Genocide became recognised, uh, or very widely recognised, at least by scholars, if not by the Turkish government, uh, because of the the campaigning and the writing of scholars who who linked the the, the Armenian Genocide very consciously to the the Holocaust and and emphasised the similarities between the two cases. And I think that was in many ways a, you know, a necessary and an avoidable starting point, but I think it's a very limited starting point if we're constantly comparing uh you know establishing genocides if we're if we're constantly um, in a, in our academic study uh, driven by trying to gain recognition for particular genocides by comparing them to other genocides, then I think that is is not really a normal uh a normal social scientific or historical procedure, and uh, mm-hmm. it's not really even a normal uh, comparative study. Uh, you know, a comparative study would be a norm, you know, more, if you like, more developed comparative study. Would not just compare one case to another, but would have a an overall framework, a general concept. In uh, you know, a framework of classification of the whole universe of cases, not just of one two three particular cases uh, and and I think the, the the way in which the the field has been developed has been skewed by its reliance on reliance on a few cases and also, I think it's been skewed by the fact that, that, that it's so closely linked. The, the, the field has been so closely linked to arguments about uh, establishing recognition of genocides, um, by mm. the, the sort of cultural, political, and the moral agendas—often you know, very understandable agendas, and ones with which with which I might sympathise—but nevertheless, agendas which are not really <laughs> academic agendas.
0: You point out, and I—I I, I forget. I'm—I'm I'm sorry. I—I I don't remember if this is your phrase. I think you're quoting somebody that the idea that genocide has become a sacred evil. Mm. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, actually, it's, it's, it's the phrase is is, is Jeffrey Alexander's of I just mentioned uh, yes. here, uh, and, and he actually he actually says that that holo- the Holocaust has become a sacred evil. Mm-hmm. The Holocaust has become an event which is so evil that we can't study it in normal historical uh In our academic terms that we we have to treat it as as as, as something you know, with almost a sort of religious or you know as the the of, of opposite of 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 the good or of of uh, the valuable uh you know, this is the paradigm of evil in our times and and therefore we can't treat it uh, in any way uh, normally and uh but i mean he he makes the, the the case that this 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 actually makes it very difficult to understand the Holocaust properly um uh, because it was an event that took place in history it mm-hmm. you know it was something uh which was the product of quite normal you know historical uh processes of the process of modernity bureaucracy racism you know all the other sorts of uh normal social Factors that would go into other ter- terrible events were pre- present in the Holocaust, and, and we, we need to be able to understand it in the in a framework, in the same framework with the under- which we understand other things. So he so he poses this concept of, of sacred evil. What I uh, what I add, I think, is, is is to say that I think that the genocide uh, 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 in general has come to be mm-hmm. seen as a sort of sacred evil. That so we, you know, that as soon as we 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 say something is a genocide. Uh, then it is treated completely differently in the minds of many people from mm-hmm. um, you know, something which we don't call a genocide. And so actually then you have this this sort of a very uh, nimidious dividing line between those episodes which can be called genocide and those which can't, which are, for example, only or merely ethnic cleansing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a very, very uh, dangerous
0: road to go down. So you started this discussion a little bit. Uh, Can I ask you to kind of go further with this idea of of the paradigm of comparative genocide, which is what you suggest most of genocide studies is right now. What – aside from this idea of of looking one-to-one from the Holocaust Mm -hmm. to something else, what are these basic assumptions that shape this way of studying the field?
1: Well there, there, there are quite a lot of assumptions, but um mm. I, mean, I mean I suppose the, 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 the key assumptions are that the what the field is, should be concerned with uh, are, are genocides, uh which are uh by definition definition uh large scale discrete episodes of uh violence which can be um treated uh historically And compared to each other across time. So one of the examples that I talk about quite a bit is the way in which comparative genocide studies, uh, includes quite a lot of discussion of, you know, how the Armenian genocide is similar to the Holocaust or how, how the Rwandan genocide is similar to the Holocaust. And the Rwandan genocide in particular, I mean, I mean, obviously clearly there are some similarities of the Holocaust and it may be illuminating to, to discuss them, but these two, these two genocides took place in very different historical periods. Uh, They were the products of uh, different sorts of domestic and international uh, political factors. They were mobilized in in, uh, significantly different ways, and they need to be seen, I think, in different sorts of contexts. So I think it's much more illuminating. To look at the Holocaust in the context of the, the period of the, uh, the Second World War and more generally the period of conflicts between uh, major world empires and the ways in which the, the Holocaust is linked to other genocide in the same period. So, for example, uh, we um, might consider the, the linkages uh, between the Holocaust and the genocide that were, was committed by the Stalinist regime in the Soviet mm-hmm. Union, which occurred in the same period, often in more or less the same regions, uh, and often uh, conditioned by the, the international conflict between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, which was part of the larger conflict of, of the Second World War. So I think it's actually much more constructive to... To look at the, the Holocaust in that context of the, the larger problem of violence, uh, you know, of genocidal violence in the Second World War period and in the larger historical period of which it was a it was sort of the a, like a culmination, uh, and then turning to the Rwandan genocide, to look at the Rwandan genocide in the context of the the. Uh, more complex and longer term pattern of violence in the Great Lakes region of, of Africa uh, it, which included the the not only the previous episodes of uh, violence in Rwanda itself, the genocidal massacres of the early 1960s which uh, very much set the tone for what happened in the 90s, but also the uh, the genocide in Burundi in 1972, uh, the genocidal episodes in Uganda, where of course the Tutsi refugees from uh, Rwanda mm-hmm. went, um, the, and to look in, look at the Rwanda genocide in the sense of the culmination of a set of of transnational border cross border. Uh, international and transnational uh, processes, a lot to do with refugee flows, um, which were, you know, w- w- which were crucial, uh, as René La has argued, in in uh, forming the context of the genocide. And and then to look at the the Rwanda genocide not as a uh, as a culmination in, in the way which you might say the Holocaust was a culmination of its period, but the Rwanda genocide in a sense was not only a culmination of what had gone before, but a, a starting point for new genocidal violence, in the, particularly in what became the Democratic Republic of Congo in the late 90s and early 2000s. So to look at uh, this whole regional context uh, in an international, transnational way, seems to me to be much more illuminating than to compare the Holocaust in Rwanda, which is what uh, so many people have done and what so many students are asked to do in their essays. <laughs>
0: I will neither confirm nor deny that I've asked them to do that in my class. However, uh, I may not anymore, uh, and that is, in some sense, your your basic claim in the book, right? That that the nature and characteristics of genocide change over time, yes, and that these changes are related to changes in the international system. Yeah, um, that rests on a, a a certain kind of definition of genocide, or, or or perhaps use your phrase, genocidal violence, which differs from. Other understandings of genocide. So, how do you understand what genocide is, and how are you going to use that um, category in your research?
1: Well, this is, this is obviously a very important question, and uh, I, I mean, I, I suppose I do have the, the benefit of having having written the book about it beforehand, so I didn't go into this, uh, you know, making it up as I as I go along. But um, I I, 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 I understand it. I think I understand it. I mean, not entirely differently from how other people understand it. I. I um, I see myself as, uh, as following broadly in the, the footsteps of uh, Raphael Lemkin's original definition of genocide, mm-hmm. which was a, a broad definition in the, in the sense that he uh, understood genocide as the, the destructive violence against uh, a particular group or groups of, of, of people. Uh, defined in his case, particularly uh, emphasised nationality or ethnicity, but um, but but the, the definition is capable of being extended to include other types of, of group, and uh, he 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 emphasised. Uh, you can go see this in his original 1944 book Axis Rule in Occupied Europe, where he talks about the Nazi genocide as something which involved eight different methods of, of destruction. So killing and uh, direct physical violence were only one out of, of the eight methods of genocide which, which Lemkin identified in the, the Nazi place, the Nazi case. Genocide is really the targeted destruction of a social collectivity or a group in, in the general terminology which people use and uh this this takes place through many different means so i would emphasize not only uh killing and physical violence um directed uh, towards uh people indiscriminately uh, irrespective of of, uh, sex and i would emphasize the role of sexual violence, uh, which has been very important in all genocides, but only really recognized in the last 20 years, uh, as we've looked at cases like Yugoslavia and Rwanda. Uh, I would emphasize the role of uh, the forced removal of populations, the uprooting of populations. These are all methods of genocide, uh, all methods through which social collectivities are destroyed. And the question of the level of killing, which which many other people make crucial there, because there are many people who define genocide simply as mm-hmm. mass killing. Uh, this was uh, always regarded by Lemkin as uh, one element of genocide, and and I think that's correct. And I think the the level of mass killing is a an empirical question rather than something which defines genocide and delimits genocide from other phenomena.
0: I so let me ask from from the perspective of somebody who's who's not an expert, doesn't do research, yeah. the seems to me the the logical follow up question then would be is and, and I recognize this goes directly against what you just said, yeah. but is there some kind of lower boundary in terms of numbers? Can you reasonably talk about a hundred deaths being genocide if for instance the group of people or not even deaths, deaths, of course, but deportations or, or whatever way that this group is being destroyed. Yeah. If the group is small enough, does that reasonably count as genocide?
1: Well, I don't. I don't think there is a there is a, a numerical threshold uh, mm-hmm. for for either deaths or expulsions or rapes or any other sort of violence or coercion which is involved in genocide. Uh, genocide is a, in, in my definition, genocide is first of all a type of action. It's targeted action aimed at the destruction of a group. Uh, Secondly, it's a form of conflict because as soon as one organized actor tries to destroy a social collectivity, then there's going to be resistance from that collectivity and usually from other actors as well. Uh, And and thirdly, genocide, of course, is is an outcome. Uh, Genocide is... uh, You know, we can measure the number of deaths and and, and other forms of victimization. The uh, um, form of action can be characterized as genocide, even if it's not successful. So we can talk Mm -hmm. about uh, genocide. I mean, for example, the... uh, the uh, expulsion of the Kosovo Albanians in uh, 1999 by the Milosevic regime uh, which involved about 10,000 people being killed but uh, a million and a half being expelled from their homes. Uh, In the end we would say that was an unsuccessful genocide because most of the people who who were expelled were were able to return because Mm NATO intervened and defeated uh, Serbia and uh, And so we would say that that the that, that, you know that, that the the genocidal element of of that care, of of uh, milosevic 's attempt to uproot the Kosovo albanian society was in the end uh, very limited in its in, in its outcome but nevertheless it was, it was it, it seems to me an attempt to destroy kosovo albanian society which which we would see as a genocide and, and and which I would define as a genocide even if they, even if only a hundred people have been killed rather than ten thousand. Uh, it's, I mean, clearly, there are many cases, uh, I mean, if we think about colonial genocides, there are many cases where, uh, the peoples who were being destroyed by the colonists were, you know, relatively small indigenous peoples, maybe numbering a few thousand or a few hundred. Uh, and uh, you know, a hundred deaths in in those cases, uh, you know, it would be a very significant number of deaths, which would say that something very very serious was happening to that society. So, I think we we can't we we, we can't uh, set a sort of uh, numerical threshold. It doesn't help us in in trying to understand what's going on to do that.
0: So, with that as the background, because that's going to shape the the kind of case studies you choose and and the discussion, historical discussion you engage in. You 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 talk about three different periods in the international system, uh, and I'd like to go through each quickly and, and give you a chance to explain yes. and, and to comment. And so the first then is the inter-imperial international system. What what was this, and and when was it, and and how did this system shape genocidal actions or genocidal behavior?
1: Well, this this was the the, the international system that uh, developed over centuries. Uh, uh In the second half of the, the the last millennium and which uh involved the the growth of uh great European empires which colonized the world between them and uh which engaged in warfare against each other but also against indigenous peoples and polities uh in the latter stages of this uh system uh the United States of course, became another important empire the uh, japan Japanese uh, became a significant uh, world empire and and so in the twentieth century, in the two world wars, we had an international system characterized by uh, major conflicts of these, uh, a whole bunch of empires, the, you know, not only the mm-hmm. Americans, the Japanese, uh, but all, all the big the European empires, the British, the Germans, the French, etc. And, and of course also the Russian Empire, which, which, uh, and the Ottoman Empire in the First World War, which, uh, and the Russian Empire became the Soviet Union, which, which, in a sense, was another imp- empire, another imperial sort of polity in, in, uh, the, uh, in the middle of the 20th century. And, and the, Rivalries of of these empires uh, generated the these most two most terrible world wars, and these two these two world wars were the context in which the uh, nationalist rivalries between a whole number of different peoples and states uh, became more and more genocidal. And this, uh, and so we, we, whereas in the earlier phases of, the, of the, this uh, inter-imperial system, uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries, we had uh, a lot of relatively small-scale, relatively low-level genocidal violence by colonists against uh, indigenous peoples. In the late 19th and especially in the first half of the 20th century, we had a much larger-scale. Targeted violence generally being uh, run by states or at least by radical regimes running states, uh, and so we have these we have these very big, well-known episodes like the Armenian genocide in the, during the First World War and the Holocaust, and, and the rest of the Nazi genocide in the Second World War. But we we have a lot of other genocidal violence as well in this this period, and uh, and and this this uh, is to me this is. Uh, you know, it is a classical period of genocide in the sense that you know, it contains uh, some of the episodes which most people are concerned about when they think about genocide. And I think it's very important to see how these genocides and other genocides in this period was produced by the international conflicts uh, and conditioned by the international conflicts which uh, were taking place in that time.
0: I want to – just one other thing about this and, and that's – to go back to something you touched on earlier about our focus on things like Armenia or, or the Holocaust. One of the things you suggest is that is that the implication of that or, or one of the conclusions that has been drawn from that is that genocide is usually state-centered and performed or um, uh, whatever, acted yeah. out by – State-controlled institutions, or organizations, or, or individuals, and what what I see you suggesting is that that's certainly true in some cases, but that much of the genocidal violence in this period is actually not state-centric.
1: Well, in the in the first half of the 20th century, and particularly in the the world wars, the Second World War above all, uh, I think genocidal violence mostly is state centric, right. more, more state-centric than in other periods. Yeah, I think the, if you look at the colonial genocide in in the earlier centuries, exactly. yeah. that is much less state centric. There, the, the you know very often it's the settlers themselves or the local colonial governments or uh, local militias uh and the the big imperial governments far away in europe uh, are indirectly involved uh not not very closely often with what what's going on sometimes they are but in in, in many cases uh, they're only indirectly and at a distance involved in these places. in the the genocides of the first half of the 20th century in europe mm-hmm. generally speaking uh radical uh, regimes like the uh, Committee of Union Progress regime in the Ottoman Empire uh, during the First World War, the, uh, the Stalinist regime in Russia in the 1930s and 40s, and the Nazi regime. Uh, these are at the center of the, the genocides which are taking place and, and other states uh, as well are involved in, in, in this period and also although there is always in, in all these genocides there is a non-state element there is uh element of popular participation, there are non-state actors who are involved but nevertheless it's much more top down than it had been in the, in the past and I would say also that it's much more top down than it became often in many cases in in the
0: Mm -hmm. period after the Second World War. Yeah, and thank you for rescuing me from a poorly worded question. So it was, in fact, colonial violence that I was thinking of. So let me rephrase that a little bit. and ask: Compared to the other two periods, this is a very long period of time. Mm. Uh, And I'm struck by by that fact and about how in this two or three or four hundred years, depending on how you want to define it, uh, you can have this kind of colonial violence side by side or... Maybe not side by side, but um, integrally related to these more state-centered um, kinds of violence. And is there a change in the essence of the international system that sh- that moves or shapes this move from colonial genocide toward this more state-centered violence? Is that the the, the wars and, and inter-imperial conflicts you refer to?
1: Well, I, I would say it's not really a change, uh, uh, a dramatic shift in the nature of the, the international system, but it's, uh, it's um, a culmination of processes which, in the earlier periods, don't lead to such radical, uh, mm-hmm. historical, uh, radical genocidal uh, developments in, in Europe itself. In during in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries. The European empires are basically still, uh, uh, conquering the world. They are competing with each other in, uh, uh far-flung places. Uh, they are not fighting, uh, uh, large-scale wars against each other except perhaps in the, in the beginning of the 19th century with the uh, Napoleonic Wars, which, which is an interesting context to look at because we, we particularly in, in France, we have the, the uh, episode of the the vendee mm-hmm. um, when which which in some way prefigures what happens later, but uh, it, of course what, what is also happening uh, so what is happening is, is really uh, one thing is, is is the the way in which the the competition between the European empires, which is now drawing on in also the United States and Japan at the beginning of the twentieth century uh, becomes uh, a competition over uh, space in europe as well, and uh, the the sort of violence which colonial empires practiced in the colonies uh, often you know through surrogates through the through the the colonists themselves uh in the in the in the nineteenth century returns to uh to europe and uh, and once it did once it, it it starts to happen in europe it 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 becomes often uh, much more uh, intense and, and much more state-centric, uh, be, be because also in, as, as this competition develops, the, the, the states themselves are changing, you know, the, the nature of the, the state at the beginning of the 20th century is, is different from the beginning of the 19th mm-hmm. century and, you know, states have much more power, they've mobilized all the, the resources of, of industry and they are able to uh, engage in you know, violence, to protect violence, not only in wars against each other, but also against civilian populations uh, in in genocide.
0: So the next period you talk about is that period, I'm just going to characterize, as that period between the end of the Second World War, or roughly, and uh, 1989, which many people kind of conventionally call the Cold War. Uh, And so I'm going to Ask you to talk about this period and whether you think the Cold War is a useful label for this period when we're thinking about genocidal violence, or or whether you'd rather talk about it in some other way. I think it's difficult to avoid the the Cold War as a label for this
1: period, and, mm-hmm. and, and um, I mean I'm, I'm happy to use it as a, as a as a as a label as a starting point, if if you like, because the the Cold War is the overarching international conflict of of this period and it appears to dominate what's going on in the world and to, and to some extent it does and to you know in, in very important ways it, it drives what's going on. But there's a lot more going on in this period. I I think this is the most uh in many ways the most interesting period of the of the three that's, that I discuss in this book because I think it's the, the one which has been least discussed in, in in the genocide field the you know the, the Holocaust and the Armenian genocide and the, you know, the, the the violence of the first half of the 20th century in Europe has has been very well covered in in some ways uh, the recent violence in places like bosnia Rwanda uh, Darfur and many other places you know, this is something which we are dealing with today many social scientists and uh, others are are looking at these uh, these uh, events but you know, this, this, uh, long immediate past uh, of ours, which, uh, you know, is the gap between the Holocaust and what's going on today, yeah. uh, is, is something which we haven't really looked at uh, at. uh, I mean, there are a lot of people who are starting to look at particular episodes within this, and I've tried to draw on their work, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know that anybody else has really tried to pull this together. And I I found myself struggling in some ways because um, it it is quite a challenge. And the challenge, it seems to me, is to sort of disentangle the specific Cold War elements from the other things which are going on in this period, which actually are also driving genocide and which are indirectly related to the Cold War, but not so directly a, a consequence of it. So, for example, I would say that in uh, East Asia, uh, the, from the Korean War uh, through to the Cambodian genocide, we have a, a history of genocide which is very much tied up with the, the Cold War. The, the Korean War itself contained genocidal violence. The, the uh, Maoist regime in China was at its most radically genocidal with the Great Leap Forward and the, the Cultural Revolution in the period when China was internationally most exposed, when it was it faced enemies both in the United States and in the Soviet Union. Uh, so that was a, a, you know, a unique period from the late 50s through to the early 70s when the most terrible things happened in China. The the Cambodian genocide itself very clearly related to the uh both to the uh the, the Vietnam War and uh also to the international conflicts within communism which are to do with the 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 the, 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 the rivalries between China and and, and and Russia. And so I, I see this as, as, as this pattern of genocide is very much connected Very directly connected with the the Cold War, and another uh, broad region in which uh, genocidal developments seem to me to be Cold War linked, very more closely Cold War linked, is is Latin America, where Mm -hmm. the anti-leftist violence in uh, places like uh, Guatemala, Argentina, uh, Chile. Uh, and in other places but particularly in those uh Colombia. um this this seems to be have a very close cold war connection it's it's very much a case of of uh, repressive military regimes linked to the united states uh uh taking uh violence against uh those they see as cold war enemies and 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 communists and and uh and, and so we can see those sort of patterns, but on the other hand, the broad regions of the world in which, you know, the things which are happening are tied in with the Cold War, but which are much more driven by decolonization, uh, in, in the sort of conflicts which took place as, as colonial powers disengaged, I think we can see quite a lot of genocidal violence, uh, and later, of course, the conflicts within, uh, post-colonial states the conflicts over who's going to run the States. Uh, -hmm. as I mentioned before, you know, the Rwandan, the history of genocide in Rwanda started before the 1994 genocide. It started just after the end of, of the colonial period when the Belgians handed over to the Hutu nationalists and the previously dominant Tutsis were then discriminated against and indeed massacred, uh, so this is this is this is a, a case where you know, where genocide is linked to decolonization um, and to the the struggle for the post colonial state and that struggle can take place as it did in rwanda where where people are struggling to control a particular state which is which is existing and which they exi- agree should continue to exist or it can take place also in the context of wars of secession. Many of the the worst genocidal episodes of uh, this uh, whole period from uh, the the, the late 40s through to the 80s are connected to to wars of of secession where uh, one uh, nationality, uh, the dominant nationality uh, or regime using uh, dominant nationality uh, uses violence against uh, the people who, who want to secede, who are seen as supporting the secessionists, uh, and, and so, so we have uh, a whole number of contexts where that sort of thing is is is, is going on. So, so it's a it's a it's a, it's a, it's a complex pattern of uh, of genocide in the, in this period, which is linked through all these different dynamics, which are of course are interrelated, but which are, I think needs to, need to be be separated out.
0: And then, of course, the third period comes after the collapse or, or simultaneously with the collapse of the Soviet Union and, and runs to the present. Yes. How, how did you characterize this system? Uh,
1: well, here, the, I mean, the international system is is, is, is changing because whereas the, the, in the, the previous period, the international system was polarized between the, the two blocks, and when I make the point of that, actually in many ways it's a three-way polarization because China... For most of that period, was a sort of third pole, uh, and that was important to the history of genocide. But um, in the aftermath of the the the, the Cold War, we have uh, the uh, so-called unipolar moment when the United States is is uh, unprecedentedly dominant. The Soviet Union implodes, and one of the things I look at is is the way in which the the end of the Cold War and the implosion of the Soviet Union are linked to, uh, you know, some of the, the worst genocidal crisis of the recent, uh, recent past, the very recent past, in the, in the, not only in former Soviet region itself, in, uh, places like Armenia and Azerbaijan and Georgia, but also in, uh, former Yugoslavia. The, the Yugoslav wars are very, very very clearly a result of the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh and, uh you know the breakup of the communist system and the and the, the you know, the demise of communism. And the uh and but I also suggest that the, the that this uh change in the international system which at least in the 90s uh, and the 2000s made it look as though the United States was much more powerful, uh, even more than it had been in the previous past because the Soviet Union disappeared. This also uh, in the context of the new wars that the USA was involved in in the the uh, the 2000s Posed genocidal dangers, and one of the one of the cases which I uh, talk about, which I think is interesting, is the the, you know what happened in 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 Iraq, and of course it's something which is very uh, topical today because these problems have come back in a new form uh, in uh, 2014. And, uh, but in the, in the, uh, aftermath of the uh, American invasion, which is very much made possible by the sense that the U.S. has no, uh, serious rivals, that the, you know, there's, there's no great power like the Soviet Union to constrain America from using its, its undoubted military power. You know, they go in and they, they invade this country and, of course, I'm not suggesting in any way that Americans commit genocide, but what they do is they open up a conflict between different uh, new emergent factions within Iraqi society, which itself starts to take genocidal forms because the uh, Sunni-based militia attack the Shiites. And the then Shiite militia attacks Sunnis and both of them try to drive people who don't belong to their particular brand of Islam out of the territories which they control. And uh, the other sections of the popular other groups in the population like the Christians and the other minorities are uh, uh, very, very vulnerable and, and, and many of them suffer massacres. Mm-hmm. it's a very it's a sort of low level of genocidal violence it doesn't uh hit the the model of the holocaust or Rwanda even it's it's it's, it's something different uh mm-hmm. but it's 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 uh i think something which is very typical of our time that, that we we have this sort of thing going on
0: so that's a remarkably quick kind of walk through your ideas and i just want to recognize that and point out to the listeners that the, the book is a deep, thoughtful, sustained argument and and well worth reading to get the additional information and to get the additional depth that actually reading it would give. I, I want to conclude with a few broader questions and and one you 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 mentioned in the conclusions that and and you kind of start out by by framing this by saying you were at least in part an activist. Um, I'm wondering what genocide studies. So I guess it's kind of a two-prong question. One is, I wonder to what degree genocide prevention should be about activism, or at least about having concrete action to create change in the current world. And I guess the second part of that is um, what you can say about genocide prevention based on your work.
1: Uh, yeah, these, this is a very important, but also for me quite a difficult uh, topic. Uh, <laughs>
0: um,
1: it's important because uh, I mean I don't think anybody who studies genocide does so without being you know, interested in uh, you know, how to stop this this, yeah. this this sort of evil occurring. And I think you know the, the moral and necessarily also political dimensions of genocide research are always going to be there. Um, having said that, I, I, I mean one of the the arguments of my book, uh, which I think I alluded to earlier on, is, is, mm-hmm. is, is, is that really we need some distance between ac- uh, academic genocide research and the uh, and, and activism. We need to, we need at least a, a distinction of roles that they, these are two different things and they 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 they, they have two different sorts of uh, uh, agendas really. And the academic agenda is always going to be uh, to look for the complexities to look for the the difficulties of 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 uh of of the proposed solutions as well as the the advantages of them whereas the activist obviously is is bound to bound to look for the the one thing or the two things that that, that will that can be done now which will really change the things about a particular case which is which is going on um where the where the two come together uh, in this book, it's, it's, it's often uh, quite uh, critical. Uh, critical, I suppose. It, 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 it's um, I, quite a lot of what I'm saying is really to suggest that some of the agendas of genocide prevention are too simple. That mm-hmm. uh, genocide is a deeply embedded problem in our, our world. Uh, that it's, it's, it's morphing in, into new forms uh, in the 21st century. Uh, in many different places, and it, there, there are no uh, simple answers. And that when you, uh, you know, if you like charge in with a, uh, an international intervention, you can sometimes make things worse as well as make things better. I don't try to 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 mm-hmm. to, to say that you know that with one or the other. I just say that we need to be aware of the of the of the of the of the problems there, and we need to. To be critical of sometimes of 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 those who who advocate intervention as well as as, as critical of those mm-hmm. the interests which actually prevent uh, interventions when when they could actually help people who are who are suffering. So, so I, I, I suppose I you know based on the book I don't I don't have a simple answer. <laughs> <My> writing <laughs> this book for me in many ways. Um, made me more critical of the simple demand for humanitarian intervention or military action based on the Mm. responsibility to protect than I was when I started it because I I came up against uh, the cases in which this has been quite difficult and has had uh, negative consequences. And I think the the, the problem of intervention in the world today is, is very much... Bound up with the the dominance of great power politics of uh, you know for example the interests of the United States and the Soviet Union and uh, the Russian Federation and uh, uh, the other great powers we've you know we've seen in in Syria the the way in which Russia has been able to prevent the United Nations doing anything and I think for me uh, one of the directions in which I would like to see things going is to, is to actually to to, to uh, activists, to recognise the the difficulties of putting the onus always on the United States or on other Western powers to to solve these problems. I think we need uh, actually uh, a, a movement back from from military action and uh, looking at the whole framework of international order. We need to look at uh, why the international legal institutions. That have been developed uh, are so limited in uh, their scope and um, and uh, you know, not able to take on many of the cases which have come up. I mean, it's absolutely outrageous that the Syrian conflict, for example, has not been mm. referred to the International Criminal Court. Uh, but it can't be in the with the with the lineup of forces in the Security Council which we have at the moment. So, so I think we need to. I mean, it's not—it's not really an easy message that the book is giving. I think, and the book isn't directly giving a message, but the message which I would give today is not, is not an easy message. I think it's a message that that uh, these issues of genocide and genocide prevention are bound up with the great power politics of the international system in ways which are often very difficult, and that it's not always easy to find ways through to to, to help people. We must—we obviously look for. What we can do in these situations, but that's it. but I, I don't think there are easy answers
0: And that that maybe Anticipates that the next question I was going to ask because we have we have a, a new Interdisciplinary core here where I teach at Newman and so I've been doing a yes. lot of teaching with natural scientists and social yes. scientists and they keep telling me that one of the values of, of theory is that it suggests further Avenues or questions for research. So I'm wondering what what the next steps are that are suggested by this research where where should genocide studies now go?
1: Well, I I think I really only opened up uh, you know, the the, new sort of historical approach linked to uh, a a heavy emphasis on the international and Mm -hmm. global Uh, framework rather than the the idea that you can look at genocide neatly within national packages. Um, I I mean this is, uh, I've opened it up in a way that builds on a certain amount of important work which has been done uh, particularly by those who have been working on colonial genocide like uh, Dirk Moses or people like um, Donald Mm -hmm. Bloxham who've written about the international uh, system in the first part of the 20th century. Um I don't think that there is yet uh, enough work that looks at genocide from this sort of macro international uh, approach. And so, so, you know, in one book I can only propose a sort of framework and I can only sketch uh, a narrative, which is really what I've done to, um to, 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 you know, to enable this sort of discussion to, to, to take place. I think what needs to happen is uh, for there to be a lot more uh, empirical work in, in on, on many different cases that, uh, that we can see in, in uh, the recent past as, as well as in the present, and to you know for, for a dialogue to take place really between those of us who are looking for things at things at, at a international or system level and those who are. The historians and the empirical social scientists who are looking at particular cases and uh who are analyzing things in in greater depth i mean i've tried to to do have this sort of dialogue within my book and to, and to draw on the the work that uh, many of these people are doing but uh I think there's an awful lot more to to, to do uh to uh to, you know to frame the arguments and i think another another direction which maybe is important is is As we become conscious of how the international system is changing in the first part of the 20th century, how this post-Cold War international system is not what we thought it was going to be in the 1990s or even in the 2000s, but it's becoming something uh, something again in the 2010s and will no doubt change further in the the 2020s, 30s. Uh, we, we, We need, I think, to, to look very hard at, at uh, what is happening in international relations, what is happening with the sorts of conflicts which are taking place in many parts of the world, and that the role of genocide in these conflicts and the ways in which the changing international system is is, is creating new contexts of genocide. Uh, so I think the the... the work that needs to be done, this is partly historical, but it's also, I think, uh, future of looking in, it also needs to be looking at the present and, and, where, and where, where things mm-hmm. are going now, because I'm very concerned about the, the, the patterns which are recurring and developing in many parts of the world.
0: Well, we've taken a lot of your time, Martin, I appreciate it so, so much. Um, the, I'd like to end with the last kind of traditional concluding question, which is just to give you a chance to say what you're working on now, whether it's something, again, with um, some of the uh, issues with genocide studies you just highlighted, or whether it's something completely different.
1: Well, I I have, since I I finished this, the book of uh, the Gen- genocide and international relations which I suppose was finished now about uh ooh, eighteen months ago mm-hmm. i uh, I've been working on a second edition of my what is genocide mm-hmm. and uh, I've actually found this a very interesting process to to go back to the conceptual questions after you know writing this historical analysis. And also to, to take in the enormous literature which has developed in the last decade. You know, I first hmm. wrote the first edition of that book about 10 years ago nearly and, uh, and in that time, because this is an exciting developing field, a, a lot has been written. So for example, uh, you know, I felt that I really had to, to completely rewrite my treatment of Raphael Lemkin, uh, hmm. you know, because the, a lot more has been, I mean, not only has his a lot of his work being uncovered, but a lot of people have written about this and you know, analysed it in in very interesting ways. So, so I just finished doing that. Actually, this has this has been what I've been doing over the last uh, six or nine months, and. Uh, uh, and at this point, I, I don't have a, another project. I'm, I'm, <laughs> uh, I, I feel, in a way, I have said most of what I want to say about genocide, and that I ought to think whether I should be going in in other directions. That um, I haven't really decided,
0: and uh, so watch this space. Well, wonderful. Well, I want to thank you so much again for your time. It's been wonderful, um, and we look forward to uh, seeing that new edition and. Uh, Wish you a, a great summer of contemplation and relaxation. Thank you. All right. Take care. You've been listening to an interview with Martin Shaw about his book, Genocide and International Relations, Changing Patterns in the Transition of the Late Modern World. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time for a special episode of the podcast. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide. To recognize this, the next show will feature a panel discussion around the question, what do we now know about the Rwandan genocide 20 years after? Scott Strauss, Lars Waldorf, and Leanne Fuji will all join me to help answer this question. A bit of editing has delayed the posting of this podcast, but it should be up next week, and I hope you'll join us then. In the meantime, thanks for the download, and have a great month. Thank you.